Amen. Good morning, everybody. Yeah, it's great to see you today. Happy Mother's Day to all you moms. We're going to take a minute at the end of the service and recognize you especially. But for now, we study God's Word. Do you have your Bible with you? Good. Hebrews chapter 11 is where you need to go. If you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one from the pew rack right there in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at all, take that one home. Consider it our gift to you. Read it, study it, know it, see the Lord in His Word, hear from Him. Uh, it changes our lives with power and authority. Last week, we looked at a passage in Hebrews chapter 11 that's more general than most. You know that most of Hebrews 11 is about specific examples from the Old Testament about what it looks like to live the life of faith. But at the very beginning of chapter 11, and a couple of times throughout the chapter, the author zooms out a little bit, and instead of looking at specific examples, he gives some general instruction general description about what faith is. And last week was one of those occasions. The principles from last week, the principles from the text last week can really be applied, I believe, to every one of the specific examples in Hebrews chapter 11. Every one of those Old Testament uh, saints, those principles that we looked at last week apply to their lives. For example, the text last week told us that all of them died without seeing the ultimate fulfillment of the promises God had made to them. They didn't, they didn't see the Messiah. They didn't see the hope of glory and eternity. They didn't see the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But they trusted that that promise was coming. They trusted in the Messiah to come. Secondly, all of these saints in the Old Testament consider themselves to be strangers and aliens in this world. They recognize that this place was not their home. And thirdly, all of these recognize that they ultimately had another home, a better home, a home that they longed for, a home that they lived in light of, an eternal heavenly home, an eternal heavenly country, the text said last week. And so those principles that we saw in the text last week really apply to all of the Old Testament examples in chapter 11. Last week, by way of application, we said that when life gets difficult for us, just like life got difficult for them, we, like they, must press on. We, like they, must look ahead and we must trust God's promises and we must cling to him. We remember Spurgeon had this quote about our faith having long arms. We don't have short-armed faith that can only hold on to what's right in front of us. We have faith that has long arms that can reach way out to the promises that God has set before us. We must cling to him when life gets hard and not turn back. Secondly, we talked about how it should be evident by the way we live that this world is not our home. Our alien status in this world should be evident to our neighbors. It should be clearly seen to our neighbors in a way that we live differently than they do. We talk differently than they do. We spend our money differently than they do. We spend our time differently than they do. This world is not our home, and that needs to be clear. And thirdly, we talked about how we must warn our neighbors that this world is passing away. That eternity is just around the corner. And the only way to be ready for eternity is by faith in Jesus Christ. By faith in his death for our sins and his resurrection and victory over sins. By trusting him. That's the only way to be ready for the life to come. This week, we're going to get back to specific examples of faithful living in the Old Testament. In fact, the story this week is one of my absolute favorites. Maybe, maybe my favorite story outside of the gospel story in the entire Bible. Um, and it's found in Genesis chapter 22. And uh, before we get into the text in Hebrews chapter 11, I want to tell you the story in Genesis chapter 22. In fact, if, you, if you're... Uh, 
so moved and you want to sit on the carpet, crisscross applesauce, you know, while I tell you this story like you did in kindergarten, by all means, move to the aisle and sit in the carpet, crisscross applesauce, because I want to tell you a story uh, from God's word, and it's, it's a great story. Um, there's a man named Abraham that you've talked about in here. Joe talked to you about Abraham a few weeks ago and how God had promised to make Abraham into a great nation. And yet he didn't have any children. And finally, when he was an old man, like a really old man, and his wife was an old woman, like a really, really old woman, God gave them a son. And that son's name was Isaac. And that word, that name Isaac means laughter because there's a lot of, lot of laughter. Some of it's good and some of it's bad surrounding the events of his birth. Well, Isaac was the deliverance, the partial deliverance of the promise that God had made to make Abraham a great nation. He's the first step in delivering the fullness of that promise. And so Abraham and Sarah, they are just really excited about the birth of this child. And when that child grew up to be about maybe 13, 14 years old, probably less than 18 years old, God tested Abraham. And God said to Abraham, 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 he got his attention. And Abraham answered the Lord like a servant, like a slave would answer his master. In total submission and obedience, Abraham said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to Abraham, I want you to take your son, that special son that you love so much, Isaac. And I want you to take him to a mountain that I will show you. And when you get him there, I want you to offer him to me as a burnt offering. And early the next morning, Abraham got up and was obedient to the Lord. He got Isaac, he got some wood, he got some fire, he got a knife and a couple of servants, and they left their home and they began traveling in the direction the Lord had told him to go. And for three days they traveled. And on the third day, Abraham saw the place that the Lord was directing him to go. And he said to his servants, you guys stay here. And the boy and I will go over there, and we will worship, and we will return to you. And so Abraham got the wood for the sacrifice, and he put it on the back of his son Isaac. And Isaac carried the wood. And Abraham himself had the fire and the knife. And the two of them, all alone, walked up that mountain. And as they were walking up that mountain, Isaac said to his father Abraham, Dad, I see the wood, and I see the fire and the knife, but where's the lamb for the offering? And Abraham looked at his son Isaac. And he said, son, the Lord will provide the lamb. The Lord will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And so they continued up the mountain. Abraham stacked some stones together. And he built an altar. And he laid the wood on top of the altar. And then he laid his son Isaac on top of the wood. And then Abraham stretched out the knife to kill his son. And just before he plunged that knife into the heart of his son to kill him in obedience to the Lord, an angel spoke to him and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he looked and he said, here I am. He said, stop. 
Stop. Now I know that you fear me. Now I know that you trust me. Now I know that you love me because you have not withheld your son, your special son, the son that you love, Isaac. You have not withheld him from me. Stop. Do not harm the boy. And after the angel of the Lord said that to Abraham, he lifted his eyes and looked over in the bushes and there was a ram just in the bushes from where they were, caught by his horns in the thicket. And Abraham went and took that ram and slaughtered that ram and offered that ram as a sacrifice in the place of his son Isaac because the angel was clear, do not harm the boy. And Abraham called that place where it happened, the Lord will provide because indeed the Lord had provided the lamb for the offering. This is a fantastic story from God's word. A story that has deep meaning for the gospel. A story that the author of Hebrews is going to use as maybe the key example of Abraham's faith as it is lived out. It is in that context of that story from Genesis 22 that the author of Hebrews says this in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 17 to 19. He says, by faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Let's pray together. God, you are the God who raises the dead. The only one who does that. You have done it. You are doing it, and you will do it. And so we give you praise for your power to raise the dead. And we thank you for telling us the story of Abraham's faith and his obedience and his trust in your promises. And we thank you for how we see that you will keep your promises, even when circumstances and situations make them look impossible. You will keep your promises. And we want to live, we want to live with faith trusting that you will keep your promises. We want to live in bold confidence, in bold obedience, because you always keep your promises. So God, I pray that today as we study your word, you will challenge us, that you will change us, that you will grow us for your own glory, for our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as we get into the text today, we want to keep Genesis 22 and that whole scene on the mountain in our minds. And I want to remind you what George Guthrie said at the beginning of Hebrews chapter 11 when he gave that uh, paradigm of faith. When he said, faith is confidence that results in action carried out in a variety of situations by ordinary people in response to the unseen God and his promises with various earthly outcomes, but always the ultimate outcome of God's commendation and reward. And I think that structure that Guthrie has observed in Hebrews chapter 11 absolutely fits with this story from Genesis chapter 22. So look at verse 17 of Hebrews chapter 11. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested... And I want to draw your attention right off the bat today to really what's going to be our first application in this idea of testing. This whole scene was a test of Abraham's faith. It says it explicitly in Genesis 22, 1, that the Lord tested, after these things, the Lord tested Abraham. The author of Hebrews says it right here, that the Lord tested Abraham in offering up his son Isaac. So this raises, to me, a couple of questions. One... 
Does God still test us? Do we experience tests of our faith still today like Abraham did? And if so, what do those tests look like? What does it look like for our faith to be tested today? Because I don't know that, that it necessarily looks exactly like that. I have a son, Isaac, and I hope in a lot of ways that God never asked me to take him up a mountain and offer him as a burnt offering. But I know that God does, is testing my faith in various ways every day. So this makes me think of two New Testament texts that talk about the testing of our faith. First is in James chapter 1. Look at it on the board. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. A lot of you have this committed to memory. It says, Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What I want you to notice in that text is the link between the testing of the faith and various trials. Seems to me that this text is teaching us that the way our faith is tested today is when we encounter various trials. What does he mean by various trials? A lot of different things, right? He could have said, consider it joy when you get sick. Consider it joy when you lose your job. Consider it joy when your best friend turns his back on you. Consider it joy when you encounter all kinds of suffering. But he doesn't name any of those particular things. He uses kind of this most broad descriptor, and he says, Consider it joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces good things. So I want you to hear today that God does still test our faith, that our faith is regularly tested. And when we encounter trials... Of various sorts, it is a testing of our faith. And notice the purpose of God in those tests, according to James. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Know that the goal of this is that you would grow in endurance. Knowing also that endurance will have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, when you encounter these various trials... The end game is not to break you down. That's not God's design for those trials. The design of God in the trials that you face on a regular basis is to grow you in Christ-likeness, to increase your endurance, to make you more like Jesus, to show the strength of your faith, and even to strengthen your faith more and more. So Abraham is not far off from us. It's not as if Abraham faces this test of faith because he was Abraham. And I don't need to worry about that because I'm not Abraham. No, no, no. I believe that God is regularly, daily testing our faith through these trials that we face on a regular basis. Another passage that comes to mind is in 1 Peter. And really, uh, what I want you to see in this passage is right in the middle. But there's so much good stuff on either side. I want to read it all to you. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Listen carefully to verse 6. 
In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is good stuff right there. All of it is good stuff. But right there in the middle, in verse 6 and 7, he paints this picture of trials being the testing of your faith. And that we should rejoice in this, knowing that the outcome that God has designed in the trials we face is to grow us. Not to leave us alone, but to grow us in our faith. So I think part of what we need to consider today, right off the bat in Hebrews chapter 11, is how is my faith being tested currently? Like, What does the test of my faith look like today? And secondly, what is that test revealing about my faith? Is that test that I'm facing or tests that I'm facing revealing strong faith? Are they revealing weak faith? Are they perhaps revealing no faith? That might be the most gracious thing that God could do to you this week is to bring some kind of trial in your life that would reveal to you that you have no faith at all in the Lord Jesus Christ. Why would that be a gracious thing? Because it is then that you can cry out to Jesus for salvation. It is only when we recognize our desperate lostness that we can turn to Jesus for help. So maybe by grace, God brings you a trial that absolutely breaks you, empties you of yourself, rids you of all self-sufficiency so that you can turn to Jesus for help. Maybe the third question we need to ask is not just what is this test revealing about our faith, but what is it producing in us? How is this test growing us in our faith? How is it conforming us to the likeness of Christ? Now, as we talk about this and as we consider Genesis chapter 22 as the context, we need to be clear that Abraham passed that test with flying colors. I mean, really? He got up early the next morning, took the boy to the mountain, took the knife out, was ready to plunge it into his heart, and it was only by the voice of an angel that he stopped. There doesn't seem to be any hesitation in Abraham's life at all. He passed that test with flying colors. But that wasn't always the case with Abraham, was it? Did Abraham pass every test of faith that came his way? No, he failed some of them miserably. But what I want you to see is as we look at Abraham's life, as Abraham walks with the Lord, he is growing in his faith. This is not early in his life. He has seen a lot of the hand of the Lord when God calls him to take the boy up the mountain. He has learned a lot about God's faithfulness and his commitment to keep his promises. And so Abraham is on a trajectory of growing faith. And this seems to be one of the high points of that trajectory. And I don't know where you're at. I don't know where you're at in that journey, but I want us to be moving forward, growing, passing more tests every day as they come our way. Does that make sense? So let's not act like Abraham's perfect in all this, but this day was a good day. This day was a good day in Abraham's journey with the Lord. So look what it says. It says, by faith, verse 17, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, offered up Isaac. That, that's the way the author of Hebrews tells the story. 
That story that I spent so much time telling you early on, he says it in three words, offered up Isaac. There are a couple things to notice in that phrase. First is the quickness of Abraham's obedience to the Lord. He got up early the next morning and went to do what God had told him to do. He didn't wait around. He didn't hesitate. He didn't put out a fleece. He didn't uh, take it to the Lord in prayer. He didn't pass it through his mentors. He got up early and obeyed the Lord. Secondly, I want you to notice in this the resolve in his heart. The author of Hebrews doesn't say he was willing to offer up Isaac or he almost offered up Isaac. The author of Hebrews uses very specific language when he says he offered up Isaac. In other words, as far as Abraham's resolve, as far as Abraham's mind and heart were concerned, he killed the boy. He wasn't balking along the way. He didn't travel three days to that mountain trying to figure out, what am I going to do when I get to that mountain? How is all of this going to play out? No, he decided when the Lord said do it, he was going to do it. And in his mind, it was as good as done. R. Kent Hughes says it like this. He says, from the divine perspective, as well as from Abraham's perspective, he did it. He offered up his son. There was no hesitation. There was no reserve He offered up his son. It goes on in verse 17 and says, And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. Now this is interesting stuff here. Notice the mention of Abraham being the one who received the promises. This is a big part of the author of Hebrews' understanding of what it looks like to live by faith. That God makes promises to us and we trust that he will fulfill those promises even if we can't see them. Even if we have to hold on to them with long arms of faith. What are the promises that God made to Abraham? He made a lot of promises to Abraham. Right As soon as he called him out of his homeland, he made a bunch of promises to him. He said, I'll bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. He said, I will give you a land of your very own. I will give you possession of a land of your very own. He said, I will bless the whole world through you. The whole world is going to be blessed through you, Abraham. And he said, and I will make you a great nation. I will give you so many descendants that they won't be able to number them. They'll be like sand on the seashore, stars in the sky. You will have so many descendants, they won't be able to count them. God made some promises to Abraham. Did the Lord fulfill those promises? Well, at best, partially in this life. At best, partially, the Lord fulfilled those promises to Abraham, but most of them lie just beyond his reach, not in this life, but in the life to come. Notice also in this verse the language of only begotten son. Was Isaac Abraham's only son? No. He wasn't Abraham's only son. He had a son older than Isaac. His name was Ishmael. That's a failure of a test right there. You want to talk about a failure of a test for Abraham, it was that whole plan to get Hagar, his wife's servant, to be his wife and to give birth to a son named Ishmael. That was a mess. That is still a mess, by the way. You're still reading about that mess in the news every day. So did Abraham have other sons? Yep, he had Ishmael. And in Genesis chapter 25, you will learn that he had other children by a woman named Keturah. So why does the author of Hebrews refer to Isaac as the only begotten son? Why does the angel of the Lord in Genesis chapter 22 say, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac? Why is it that Isaac stands out? Well, John MacArthur describes it this way, and I think he's exactly right. When he says the term only begotten son 
refers to someone who is unique, who is one of a kind. In fact, that will help us make sense of Jesus being referred to as the only begotten son. He is unique. He is one of a kind. And in a similar way as Isaac, MacArthur says, was the only son born according to God's promise and was the only heir of that promise. Jesus also is unique. Jesus also is the one and only, the one and only son of God. Even though we would talk about others being sons of God, right? We would talk about us being children of God, but not in the same way that Jesus is a child of God, right? That's totally different, and we need to understand that. That's why, that's why the gospel writers will refer to Jesus as the only begotten son, okay? Does that make a little bit of sense? It'll make a little more sense as we read verse 18 when he says, It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. God makes crystal clear in Genesis, sometimes in spite of Abraham's desire, that the promises, the covenant, the land, the blessing, all of this is going to flow through Isaac, only Isaac. Abraham at one point says, why can't Ishmael get in on this? I like Ishmael. Ishmael's my son and I love him. And God says, I got another plan for Ishmael. But the plan of redemption, the plan of blessing, the plan of promise is only going to come through Isaac. God makes it crystal clear that the... Um, continuation of this promise and of this covenant is going to come only through Isaac, only Isaac. In other words, Isaac is the hinge upon which this whole promise swings. Now look at verse 19. This is the best part of the whole text. He, that is Abraham, considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him, that is Isaac, back as a type. Let me ask you a question. When I told you that story early on today, what part of it made you uncomfortable? What part of that story didn't sit well with you? It's the part about child sacrifice, right? It's the part about burn your son that doesn't sit well with us, right? But it doesn't seem to me from this text or the text in Genesis 22 that that is the part that concerned Abraham most. It seems like Abraham was most concerned about the promise of God. In other words, track like this. This promise was going to be fulfilled through Isaac. The promise of a great nation, the promise of blessing through Isaac. How can that promise be fulfilled if that boy gets killed before he is married? That's the problem. The problem is the promise. Is this promise that you've made God going to come to me? Because you've told me the promise is going to go through Isaac. If Isaac's dead, how is that going to continue? That seems to be the dilemma. Spurgeon says it like this. His great difficulty, that's Abraham's great difficulty, was how can God's promise be kept? It was not Abraham's business to keep God's promise for him. It was God's business to do that for himself, and he did it. It was Abraham's part to offer up his son. It was God's part to fulfill the promise of his seed according to the covenant which he had made. Now look back at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19. It says, he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. That word considered is pretty important. It's a Greek word that means to calculate or compute. In other words, Abraham is using some logic here. 
And this is the way his logic flows. First, God has promised to make my descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And Abraham believed that promise. Second, God has said that those descendants will come through Isaac and no other son of mine. God has promised to make me a great nation, and he's promised to make me a great nation through Isaac and not another son. And Abraham believed that. And God always keeps his promises. And Abraham believed that. And God had called him to kill the boy. And Abraham believed that. And so in my mind, I see him taking all of this information that seems to be contradictory and trying to compute it all. How is all of this going to work? He's thinking it through. He's computing. And this is the conclusion he comes to. God will raise the boy from the dead. Not God will stop me from killing the boy, but rather God will raise the boy from the dead. That's the only way any of this can work. That's the only way any of this can make sense because God has clearly called me to kill the boy and God has clearly said I'll make a great nation from the boy. I'm going to kill him and God's going to raise him from the dead. There are clues along these lines in Genesis chapter 22. Do you remember when Abraham and Isaac leave the servants to go up the mountain? Do you remember what Abraham said to the servants? He said, you guys stay here. The boy and I, will go up there, we will worship, and we will return to you. The author of Hebrews is the one that gives us the insight into why he said that. The author of Hebrews says he reasoned, he calculated in his head because of the promise and because of the command that I will kill the boy and God will raise him from the dead. And it is audacious calculation. It is outrageous calculation because he'd never seen God do that before. It's not as if God was regularly raising people from the dead in those days. He was saying, I trust the promise of God so much, and I've heard the command so clearly that this is the only way this is going to work. And so I'm going to kill the boy and watch God raise him from the dead. He had never seen God do that before, but he had learned to trust God at his word. Over the course of his growth in faith, he had learned to trust God at his word. And he had often learned that lesson the hard way. And as I think about him reasoning like that, when I think about him making that calculation, I want to make those kind of calculations. When everything seems to be counterintuitive, when God has made promises and God has made commands and it seems like following the commands will be the end of the road of the promise, I want to say, I got to do it and he's going to do something outrageous. He said, I want you to take the gospel to the nations and when we take the gospel to the nations, some of us are going to die. That's the truth. When we go to the hard-to-reach places, some of us will not come back. And we say, well, wait a minute. What, what, what do I do with those, two, those things? I want to say, I'm going anyway because he's made the promise and he's made the command. And I don't understand how it's all going to work together, but I trust him. And so we go. I want to make those kind of calculations in my life. And too often I don't make those kind of calculations. Oh, I say, recalculating, right? Like the little lady on the phone when you make a wrong turn recalculating, I want to find a different way. But I'm telling you, we need to be obedient to the way God has prescribed and trust him to keep his promises. That's what Abraham did. I love this story in Genesis chapter 22. God has used this story to change my life in a radical way. Uh, when I was just a teenager, God used this story to move me to a place in my walk with him that I had never known before. And I am thankful that he did it. And I am prayerful that he will use that story to change your life as well. If he does it half as much as he did with me, praise his name. Praise his name.
So here's the application today. Number one, I want us to think about how our faith is being tested right now. What are those things in our lives that are trials that are really tests of our faith? And let's learn to see them not as trials, not as suffering, not merely as pain, but as tests of our faith that are intended to reveal where we stand and push us to new heights. And I believe if we will look our trials in the face and see them as tests of faith designed by God to grow us, we will persevere. We will persevere and we will be more like Jesus. It is when we look at our trials and we see them as something that is intended to break us down and ruin us that we lose and we slip further and further away from the Lord. This could have ruined Abraham. You realize that, right? He could have heard the Lord, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, Lord. I want you to take your son up the mountain and kill him. No way. I'm done. If that's the kind of God you are, I'm out. It could have ruined him. It could have been the end of the story. It wasn't. It wasn't. He moved forward in faith, and I want us to do the same thing. So how is your faith being tested right now, and what are those tests revealing, and what are those tests producing in your life? And let's examine our lives in these next few minutes and consider those things. Third application is that this God that we're talking about is the God who raises the dead. He's the only one that does that. He raises the dead. This whole story in Genesis chapter 22 is really just a foreshadowing of the story of Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. You know that, that there are parallels in this story that I told you and the story of the gospel. That the only begotten Son of God, Jesus, through whom all the promises are ultimately delivered, was killed by the wrath of the Father for our sins as our substitute. And although figuratively Isaac was raised from the dead, literally Jesus was raised from the dead. He really died for our sins. They really buried him. And he really rose the third day, according to the scriptures, in victory over sin and death and hell, everything that would hold us captive, everything that would keep us down. Jesus is victorious. So God really raises the dead. He raised his own son from the dead. And he raises us from the dead today by faith. In Jesus Christ. In fact, flip over in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. It's not too many pages away. Ephesians chapter 2. I wanted to read this at baccalaureate Wednesday night, but I got to sign something else at the last minute, and so I'm going to give this to you today because it's so good. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Remember, he's writing this to believers. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that 
in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Our God is a God who raises the dead. He's done it before. He's doing it now. Maybe some of you are dead in your trespasses and sins. I want to proclaim to you that you can be raised from the dead today and given new life in Christ Jesus. Repent of your sins and trust in him and be alive. Let's stand together and pray. God, we are very thankful for your sovereignty over all the circumstances in our lives. We want eyes of faith that can see our trials as tests of faith intended to produce endurance and perfection and Christ-likeness in us. We want to have eyes of faith that can consider it joy when we encounter various trials. We want to be people of faith who pass the tests of faith that come to our lives. God, help us in this moment to consider how our faith is being tested currently and what those tests are revealing and what those tests are producing in our lives. And God, we praise you today that you are the God who raises the dead. We praise you today that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and that he was raised the third day. And we praise you today that those who are dead in their trespasses and sins can be made alive together with Christ by grace as a gift through faith and not work. God, I pray that men and women and boys and girls in this room today will respond to that message by repenting of their sins, by turning away from sin and selfishness and walking toward you in faithfulness. And I pray that you give them faith to believe, to trust, to depend on the person and work of Jesus Christ for their salvation. Not on their own efforts, not on their own righteousness, but on Christ and everything he has done for them. God, I pray that you will give faith and that you'll be glorified as men and women, boys and girls are raised from the dead. In Christ's name we pray, amen.